You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And the brilliant young historian who joins me today is New York University's Kim Phillips Fine, whose meticulously researched W.W. Norton volume, Invisible Hands, The Businessmen's Crusade Against the New Deal, is so astutely praised by Princeton historian Sean Willens as, quote, essential reading on the history of contemporary American politics. Journalist historian Rick Perlstein wrote about Invisible Hands that, with ferocious archival spadework and a sharply honed critical intelligence, this study shifts the agenda of history writing about American conservatism and marks a new stage in its maturity. Indeed, I understand so much better now after reading my guest's seminal study the historical reasons why, when a few years ago my grandson Alexander Hefner and I presented the eighth revised and updated edition of my 1952, A Documentary History of the United States, I felt constrained to apologize for my easy reference a half century before to a permanent Roosevelt Revolution. Wishful thinking on my part, perhaps. Whatever, I had been wrong, for in so many ways that Roosevelt Revolution has been countered, stymied, reversed by partisans on both sides of the aisle. And my guests' researches into the businessmen's crusade against the New Deal show how and why. So let me begin then by asking Professor Phillips Fine just what light she believes her researches shed, as Sean Willens noted, on contemporary American politics and how they shift the agenda of history writing, as Rick Perlstein noted, about American conservatism. How do those researches, which are so wonderful, do that? Well, thank you. first let me say just thank you for having me on the show today. I think that Invisible Hands really tells two stories, and they speak to both parts of your question. First is a story about the political mobilization of business in the post-war years. And I think that today, the, we, we're so deeply aware of the extent to which business is politically mobilized, with the, especially after Citizens United and with the reports in, daily in the past few weeks about super PACs and the like, um, that we forget how relatively new this level of political mobilization really is and the ways in which it has shifted both political parties. And so I think that's the first thing that, that the, the book aims, seeks to shed light on, is how is it that business people became as deeply involved in politics as they are today. The second part of the story is a story about a specific part of the business mobilization, which is that connected to the conservative movement. And here, the book seeks to intervene in a debate about where, what the origins of the American right really are, a debate that goes back in some ways to the 1950s and to the writings of people like Richard Hofstadter, your, your teacher at Columbia, um, who described the paranoid style of American politics and talked about conservatives as though it, conservatism as though it was sort of a, a mental aberration and a, 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 um, a, a really a marginal group of dispossessed people 
who were driven by anxiety about their declining social status. And I think in some ways, this depiction of conservatism, although it shifts somewhat, it is still, you know, it's still very present even today in the way people think about, in the way liberals think about the Tea Party, for example. And I, I think also a lot of thinking about conservatism has been informed by the sense that the conservative movement really grew out of the backlash against the civil rights and feminist movements of the 1960s and 1970s. And I think all of this has something to it. I, I love Richard Hofstadter and have nothing, I, I don't say anything bad about him, but I think that the, what these stories miss, I think, is the extent to which conservatism as a political movement in the post-war years drew upon um, the resource, drew upon the resources of wealthy and powerful people who were not really acting irrationally, but actually had a sense of the ways in which their, their wealth and their power had been politically constrained by certain aspects of the New Deal and of liberalism, and who sought to undo those. And I think, so I think that, 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 that starts to give some sense. Well, it's certainly true that you made me think of Dick Hofstadter, as, uh, as I wrote, uh, years ago, following what Dick had taught me and what was um, the liberals' fancy at that time. <clears throat> Indeed, as I read your book, <clears throat> excuse me, with great pleasure, I was thinking of that old New Yorker cartoon of the fat cats and probably uh, the Union League Club sitting around saying, uh, let's go down to the Translux and hiss FDR. Uh, the, I wondered as I read your book why, whether you would have some political motivation to write as you did mm -hmm. and whether Hofstadter teaching me whether we had some right. political motivation. What do you think about that? Right. Well, I think, I mean, just to say a little more just about the book itself. I mean, Invisible Hands, so it, what Invisible Hands does is it aims to tell the story of the rise of the conservative movement by looking at business activism and a business at, at a group, at first a small group, a fairly small group of conservative business people who opposed the New Deal and sought to fight it and then mobilized in different ways over the course of the post-war years. And so it talks about these business people and how they funded organizations like the American Enterprise Association, which later becomes the American Enterprise Institute. It talks about the ways that um, free market intellectuals like Friedrich von Hayek were a part of a community that included some of these disaffected business leaders. It talks about the role of anti-unionism at companies like General Electric, where Ronald Reagan kind of got his first public, really became part of the conservative movement during his years at General Electric. It talks about, and then it talks about what happens in the 1970s, which is a sort of a shift, but a, a deepening level and a, a deepening um, sort of spread of, of political engagement among uh, business conservatives. So that's kind of what the book does. My interest in this subject, I started writing this in the early part of the 2000s, but I think my interest in it really actually dated back a bit earlier to the 1990s. Um, and my sense that it, it, kind of the widespread celebration of capitalism and of the free market in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union and during the Clinton years, and, so, and, so in, and during the stock market craze of those years. And I think in some ways the ubiquity of that discourse was part of what led me to this subject. It wasn't just the election of George W. Bush, but the, the sense of the ways in which the broader political 
climate of the country had changed. Well, the word you so, use, ubiquity, it's such an important one because right. you're talking about both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, you know, it is, there is a way in which this, I think it's, it's, the Invisible Hands is focused on conservatism, but I think the things that I describe in it have affected the Democrats as well. I mean, not, not, and, you know, not exclusively, but I think it's, it, it's not something that is at all just about the Republican Party. It's not just a partisan story. I do think there's one other thing that led me to this subject, which is, um, you know, just a, a sense of the, ways in which the new left and the 1960s had perhaps, I thought, been unfairly criticized for some of the shift towards the right. I think there's a sense... No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Say that again. Well, this is that, 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 that people sometimes think of conservatism gaining strength out of the 1960s and 1970s and developing as a backlash to the radicalism of the anti-war movement, say, or the backlash against black power, and that these types of... And, that, and so, in a way, the left is blamed for the tactical failures of the left. The social are, movement. Yeah, are seen as uh, responsible for leading to the rise of the right. And I felt, I think that in a, in a way, politically, I felt this was, um, it left out a very important part of the story. And it maybe gave, in some ways, too much agency to the left. I think one of the things to understand about conservatism is the, it, the, its deep roots in American history and the extent to which, as a movement, it's been able to triumph and survive in part because of its connections to people who are not at all socially marginal. And so I think it's, it's a really, so I, I was interested in the deep roots of conservatism and in looking at it not just as a reaction to the developments of the 60s and 70s, but its longer, it, it's, its older past. Maybe only old fogies like me <coughs> can point back to uh, people who were so important in their growing understanding, mm -hmm. maybe misunderstanding of the past. What influenced you to think in those terms? Well, I think, I, I certainly think my, um, my education at the University of Chicago, which is, was a very conservative institution in a lot of ways, even in the 1990s, my interest in the labor movement, which came out of my reporting background, um, Tell us about that. Well, I, I, was, I did a lot of journalism in college and afterwards, and I quickly became very interested in unions and actually writing about labor unions at the University of Chicago, um, the hospital workers union. I wrote a whole story, the, the University of Chicago Hospital, I wrote a, a series of stories about contract negotiations there. And I think I was very interested in the way that the I was very drawn to the labor movement, which is kind of an unusual thing in some ways in the mid-1990s. But I saw the unions there as, as, and it was a very, the local, that particular local was a very good local, a very democratic local. It kind of had this group of insurgent reformers in it. And it was just very clear to me how the union was standing up for sort of individual rights and um, giving people a certain measure of freedom of expression on the job. So I think I, I had a sense of idealism out about the labor movement. That is one of the things that led me to this subject, I think. And the decline of the labor movement? Yeah, and, the, and, and an interest in wanting to explain the reasons for the decline of the labor movement. So that you feel you can trace it, uh, in part at least, to the dollars, to the monies mm -hmm. that were spent by business 
investing in uh, the American Enterprise Institute, putting it into the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers. And those names loom so large today, too. Yes. And I think also in the case of unions, the intense interest of companies in fighting the power of unions, you know, at, at, I mean, and that the, the ways in which those, um, you know, that's not just an automatic thing, that there are a set of strategies and techniques and tactics that companies develop over the course of the post-war period that stay within the letter of the Wagner Act and of labor law, but um, actually may not always stay within the letter of the law, they break it too, but that are really, you know, a concerted effort to fight the power of unions. One of the most interesting parts of your book has to do with the late Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell. Mm-hmm. How, how could it have been that a newspaper reader, uh, a teacher in fact, like myself, could not remember what it is you uh, um, reveal in your book about the importance of what Lewis Powell, before he went on the bench, uh, did. Why don't you describe? Right. Well, I guess in, it, it was a couple of months before Powell was actually nominated by Nixon for the Supreme Court. Um, his, he had turned him down before. Um, had, he, had he? I, I believe I, yeah. so. He had been offered the uh-huh. job. Well, he, he this time, he, the second, he, he, in, in late 71, he, he didn't. He went for it. But he, he was his friend, his, one, a friend of his in Richmond, who was involved with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, he and this friend were clearly in a dialogue over the course of 1971 about the state of American politics. And in the Powell archives, there are kind of copies of newspaper articles that they must have been reading or discussing. And the friend asked him to craft a memorandum, which the friend would, his friend would then present to the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which at that time was a fairly uh, sleepy organization. It wasn't really doing that much. And Powell agreed and, and wrote this astounding memorandum, which people, I mean, you know, some people are maybe familiar with this who are listening to the program, but called it an attack on the free enterprise system. And in this, he talks about what he feels is a growing attack on free enterprise in the early 1970s. And he says the least of it is the new left and the radicals. And I think it's, it's we have to, you know, thinking back to the early 1970s, this is a moment of extraordinary popular upheaval in the United States. The growing unpopularity of the Vietnam War, the um, mass demonstrations, there are uh, a certain level of, of, of bombings and, and the like that are happening, fire bombings at the Bank of America, for example. And so there's a whole, there's a really a, a, a very um, militant and a, 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 a explosive political situation. But Powell says that that's not actually what the real threat is. The real danger is not just that, but is a deepening level of disaffection towards free enterprise and capitalism and business that he says is spreading throughout the population and is um, associated with the, the uh, kind of developments like the passage of the environment, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and OSHA and regulation. And so there's a, a, he, he kind of links these two things that don't necessarily seem like they should be linked, but puts them together and says this is a, a attack on free enterprise and, what biz- and business needs to fight back. Business people need to find a way to fight back in a concerted way. This fight should take place on an ideological level by bringing speakers into classrooms and finding ways to, to, to kind of affect public debate on campuses. This fight should take place in the courts through appointing, finding ways to use the court, courts to advance a business-friendly agenda. And this should take place in politics, too. Business people really need to mobilize politically to affect what's happening to the country. 
And Powell's memorandum went to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It never surfaced in his nominate the hearings around his nomination to the court. Strange. Strangely enough, but then about a year later, uh, it falls into the hands of Jack Anderson, the Washington Post columnist, who publicizes it. And actually, it's through that public, I mean, that that level of publicity. Um, you know, many people criticize Powell, but a lot of business people learned about the memorandum that way. Many more than would have known about it otherwise, I think. And the Chamber of Commerce does actually take up many of his recommendations um, and does become a much more activist, much more aggressive group by the end of the 1970s. And the ideas that Powell talks about also affect people like Joseph Kors, who then goes on to help fund the Heritage Foundation. So they, and they, they percolate outwards. I mean, I think sometimes people look at the Powell Memorandum and say, you know, this is, this is crazy and this, is, and it's, this sounds sort of like, uh, you know, a conspiracy that this man is putting out there. And when this, this must have been just rejected, you know, surely nobody actually believed that American capitalism was about to topple in the early 1970s. But I think it, what is actually interesting is that if you look at it archivally, and other historians have been doing this work too, or kind of have done much more in-depth work than I have really on the 1970s in business politics, and have shown the ways that Powell's ideas were not by any means his alone, but were widely shared by the people who, you know, for example, start the Business Roundtable, um, an organization that's composed of um, CEOs of some of the country's largest corporations. And so they're not, mar- you know, they're not really marginal at all. What fascinates me is that uh, you seem to quote with approval mm-hmm. those people who thought it rather kooky. I, I, not with approval, but I just think I think when you're writing, one of the, the challenges of writing about this subject actually is that it's hard sometimes to take seriously the level of fear and anxiety on the part of these business people because with historical retrospect, it's difficult to believe that people actually thought that capitalism could be in this kind of danger at these moments. And then I think also it's always tricky because I think these, um, these activists, th- these were activists and they had a, a vision of what they wanted to achieve, but they aren't by any means omnipotent. I mean, they have certain kinds of power and certain kinds of resources, but they don't, you know, it's not like they can just make things happen or they don't, they don't, I think they don't, you know, wield some sort of... Yes, but the question I'm asking you is whether you're willing quite so quickly to dismiss... Right. What Powell no, was I mean, conjuring I think, up? Yeah, yeah was no, he so think, wrong? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think it. Well, thinking back to the early 1970s, I, I think that's the thing about that moment is that it, it, it was actually a moment of great social tension, and it was also a moment when the great, not quite in 1971, but shortly thereafterwards, the great the post-war boom, the economic expansion that had powered liberalism would come to an end. And I think there were fundamental questions about the way forward for the country. And so Powell's memorandum, you know, becomes part of that struggle. But Powell's memorandum also was drawing upon the past, Mm -hmm. the New Deal past. Mm -hmm. And couldn't one um, say without too much uh, criticism that indeed though FDR said his mission was to save capitalism, um, cannibal capitalism anyway, as mm-hmm. it has been called recently, uh, that in fact what took place with the strength of labor, with all of the regulations, might be hamstringing 
capitalism. Now, the next thing mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say is, so what? Right. But I wonder whether mm -hmm. that concession mustn't be made. Yeah, well, I think it, the, the New Deal does, I mean, I, don't, I think the New Deal does not, it doesn't end capitalism or it doesn't completely transform capitalism. I do believe that, you know, FDR meant what he said when he, or the idea that he was acting to save capitalism, I think is, is true. But I also think that the business, you know, I think that the, the business people who um, reacted against it were not, crazy and that they did they were actually they, their their power was curtailed and their sense of what they could do in their companies was changed by having to bargain with powerful unions their sense of what they could do with their profits was changed by extremely high corporate income taxes and personal income taxes in the post-war years um, that's less a product of the new deal years themselves but of the the war and the the legacy i would say of the new deal in the post-war period you so think there they is, turned it around Turned the, turned Do you think they turned around what Powell was describing, correctly or incorrectly? Do you oh, think, do I think the business? Do I think the business yeah. people have been able? Do you to, think what the invisible mm -hmm. hands that the crusade has been successful? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, yes. I think that the and again, I mean, I think it's not just you know. I think the context changes as well, and that changes the meaning of their activism. So it's not just a question, I think that it's not just a question of their success, but yes, in a, in a, in a, to a large measure, I think that the, um, a lot of the things that they wanted to see realized have actually come to pass. And where do you think we'll go from here? Oh, well, I don't know. I'm a historian, so we, we traffic in the past, not the future. I don't know. I mean, I think that That the, sounds as though you've said it before. No, no, no. I, I haven't said it before. Other people certainly have. But I, I think that the... the, um, the you know, I think the events of, and I think last fall, Occupy Wall Street brought a lot of these questions about economic inequality and the power of business to into national political conversation in a way that they had been had not had not been present. And I think that that was felt like a real opening and a, a breath of a sense of possibility. So we'll see what happens. This What's your summer. as a historian? Mm -hmm. uh, you and I both know that doesn't mean you're concerned only with the past. Yeah. My bet is that if I scratched a little around the surface, I'd find that your interest in the past is a function of your interest in the present and the future. And mm -hmm. that, as you said, your uh, time in Chicago, your work with labor unions, uh, molded your thinking. Yeah. So I don't think it's unfair to ask you. Oh, I just mean I, it's so next? hard. It's, it's just I just mean it's so difficult. I, I think there are so I, I don't the, the future feels. Uh, open to me, so I, I have a lot of trouble prognosticating about what will happen. I mean, I, th I guess I also feel, you know, on the one hand, I, I have, I think it's important to have an attitude of hope, but at the same time, easy to have a sense of despair. So, I think it's, it's, um, you know, I'm I, I'm very I'm interested in seeing what will happen with the whether the kind of the ferment of the, this past fall will carry forward into the future. Will Lenz and Perlstein feel that what you've done really changes the picture? Have you seen changes in the historiographical picture? I have actually. I think that there's there is a groundswell of work that people are doing both on 
the role of free market ideas and economic ideas in the development of the conservative movement. There's a real um, flowering of work on those subjects. And also, there's a very striking expansion of work on business and conservatism. And I think that when people are doing a whole, a whole group of people who are finishing their first books or graduate students who are working on their dissertations are doing work that I think really digs into different parts of what different areas that I wrote about in Invisible Hands. Not that they're all doing it just because of me or something, but I think that there is a real expansion of work in this field and that it's by no means, I mean, I think it's, it was, when I started work on this, there were um, a couple of other books that were very useful and important for me, but there just was nothing like the, the expansion, it was nothing like the volume of scholarship that I know of myself now and that will be being published in the next few years. You know, it's so interesting that when I was a young man, and that's a long, long time ago, uh, I think I took for granted what you're writing about, the businessman's crusade against the New Deal. Mm -hmm. That's what I saw it because I was there. Uh, and I assume that what you write about now, uh, about the individuals from GE and GM and so forth and so on, that they were doing what they did. We knew that then. Mm -hmm. What happened to that knowledge? Well, that's a great question, and I think it, it comes, I, I think it is actually you know, part of what, I think a lot of the material in this book is interesting to people because they have, I mean, to a, to a general readership, because people have some intimation that this is happening, and the book helps them kind of flesh that out or give them concrete evidence about it, about something that they had some impulse might be true anyway. I think that in the historical profession, there had been much less attention paid to business people as political actors. And that that's actually something that's also starting to change a bit, not just with regard to conservatism, but a whole range of different issues. There, the fields, in a way, this is, you know, there had been a lot of interest in writing about um, subaltern groups, writing about women, writing about working class people, writing about African American politics, and all of this, and, and, and looking at the politics of the dispossessed, the politics of the powerless. And I think I, I am a very big, I, I believe in that work. I mean, I think it's politically important, and, but I think that it- Wait a minute, let me interrupt yeah. you and say what I believe is mm -hmm. that I ask you too large a question at the very <laughs> end of our program, oh, so we've got to promise to come back again. Oh, I will certainly, yes. But thank you for joining me today, Kim Phillips-Fine. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as a friend, old friend, used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind.